Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. And we're here again with Elise Holzman. Hi, Elise. Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us for part two of your podcast. Delighted to be here again. When you have a client who has excelled at perfectionism and agreeableness, and, and I know this is probably a whole podcast or more, but what are the first steps to helping that person to learn those leadership skills and to not, not be bound up in the perfectionism as, as much? I think the first step is really always awareness. They may intellectually be aware of it when you point these things out, right? They may intellectually understand that they're holding themselves back by being overly focused on perfection, but it may not really land with them 100%. So I think that, first of all, talking about the ways in which they've held themselves back or they have felt held back, what they would do if they, what they could do if they weren't so focused on being perfect all the time. And remember, this is a powerful thing to get rid of because if you've been really successful, who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I've been really successful for the last you know, 40 years, 35 years, and what I'm gonna do now in order to move forward is give up everything I've been doing and do something completely different. No one's gonna do that. Those are tough habits. And also when, you know, sometimes your value, the value that you feel that you deliver in the world or the value that you have as a person is often tied to other people's approval of what it is that you're doing. So the first step is always the awareness and awareness of not just that you're doing this, but that it's not your fault, right? This is the way that you were socialized, that it is something that can be unlearned or minimized. And look at what are the things that you would want to do if perfectionism weren't holding you back. Is this the double-edged sword of protectionism that you talk about or related to it? Yeah. So I do a program um, for attorneys on the double-edged sword of perfectionism because, as I said, you know, it, it's got its benefits, especially when you're younger, especially when you're more junior. And then it becomes more difficult later because the stuff gets in the way and it's hard to let go of. You know, it's sort of like an old friend. You feel comfortable with it. You feel it's very important to you to dot every I and cross every T because you've been taught that that's the best way to do it. But as you become more senior, it's probably no longer the best way to do it. And if every T needs to be crossed and every I needs to be dotted, there may be somebody else in your firm who can help make sure those things are happening while you take a bigger picture view of what success looks like. And that kind of leads in, Elise, to one of the other things you focus on, which is how can law firms attract and retain the best talent, which I think like almost anybody would be interested in figuring out. I do think that understanding what makes your firm an attractive place to work is important. And it certainly is you're going you're gonna to talk about the kinds of work you do and the opportunities that people are going to have there for doing interesting work, growing. I think people are very interested in growth. And certainly the younger generations are very interested in growth, and we can get back to that in a second. I think talking to them about what the culture looks like, right? Is this someplace where perhaps they could stay long-term if they wanted to? 
Is this the place where they are going to have opportunity? Is this a place where they are going to feel valued as a human being? Those are things that we know that probably everybody in the world wants, but certainly the younger generations of attorneys want. There are obviously, you know, four plus generations in the work and we have different ways of looking. Millennials want to be managing partner the first day and they don't want to work hard. And I think most of that is is baloney. I think it's a misunderstanding to some extent of how people show up in the world because of their generation. What I do know about this generation, I, I guess they, what we would call the younger millennials and the people who are early in their careers as attorneys, is that they want to grow. They want their firms to care about their growth. They want their firms to invest in them. So for example, I know a firm that actually at the interview, quite literally out of law school, you know, they're interviewing three L's and they're showing them a list of benchmarks for each year, you know, before they make partner of what is expected of them and what kinds of training and support that they will receive. So it's along the lines of, you know, by X year, you should be able to defend a deposition. By Y year, you should be able to take a deposition. But it's also things like making sure that, you know, in your first couple of years, you do take people out to lunch a few times or that you do join with a partner to write an article, give a talk, be on a podcast, whatever it may be, so that over time you're growing your skills and you don't get to your eighth year or 10th year and decide that you'd like to make partner. And suddenly everybody says, well, where are all your partnership skills? Right. So I think that the more that law firms can understand that the education was so limited in law school, that in addition to developing legal skills, there are so many other sorts of skills to be developed. And they're willing to partner with the people that they hire to help them grow into those leaders and rainmakers. I think that the better off that they're going to be in terms of attracting and retaining talent. I'd like to go back to your concept of work life integration. There, there's been periods in my life where it is entirely occupied by litigation. And, and it could be two months of full-time, like every waking moment type preparation and trial. But a lot of us don't want life to be only that. We want other things too. And um, I'm curious as to why you substitute integration for balance and whether it's possible. I don't like the term work-life balance only because it's been so overused and it also seems to suggest that on a daily basis there should be balance, right? That we're going to be working, you know, eight hours a day, that we're going to be home every night to tuck our kids in, that we're going to go to every soccer game, that we're going to be able to pursue the artwork or the guitar playing or whatever it is that we want to do on a daily basis. I think that for many attorneys, there you can integrate your work and your life together over time, right? So that if you look at it from the big picture view, it all kinds kind of makes sense. There are times when you're running around with your hair on fire and you haven't had a home cooked meal in a very long time because you're always at the office, you're on trial, you know, you're doing a deal, whatever it may be. And then there are times when things slow down a little bit and you're able to feel like you have a lot more control over what's going on. And so I think that for each individual person, being willing to say what it is that you really want. I mean, when you're young, you may not totally know. I think young people know more today than they did back when I was younger because they talk about it so much more. I mean, nobody, we never talked about it back then. It was like, go get a job, work hard, make a lot of money and, you know, hook the rest falls into place. So I think there's more conversation about it now. 
And I just think for each individual person, there has to be, there, there's going to be a balance and there are trade-offs. And I think that especially women in my generation were kind of told, you know, we were, there was a lot of flag waving about women being able to have it all. And that actually put, I think for me personally, at least I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but for me, that put additional pressure on. It's like now, you know, I'm supposed to be a great lawyer at a big firm in Manhattan, you know, with article, you know, articles on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about our deals. And I'm supposed to have this really nice marriage and have nice babies and have a beautiful home and look all put together when I go anywhere and all of that sort of thing. And it felt like a lot. And I don't think that you can have all of that because something has to give, but you certainly can't have it all at the same time. So I think that in today's world where people are much more willing to talk about these things and many people are more willing to make choices that serve them most effectively, you know, I think that it may be easier for some people to have the work-life integration that serves them. But I do think that there are certain places where that's just not what's emphasized and it's not going to be emphasized. If you go to an Amlaw 50 law firm, they talk about it and they certainly don't want people getting sick over it and having mental health problems, right? There's more discussion about that as well. But there's a, a very serious expectation of you building tremendous hours, right? If, you're, if you are a trial lawyer, you know, and you're not getting paid by the hour, if you don't run these cases through properly and quickly, as quickly as possible to conclusion, the firm isn't getting paid. And so those pressures are going to continue to exist. It's not, you know, this is, we're talking about for-profit businesses here. And so those pressures are always going to be on. Another thing that you talk about, Elise, is leveraging your personality traits for joy and success. Like, is there a lawyer personality and why does it matter? Can you tell us about that? The research indicates that there is a lawyer personality. So many of your listeners, and perhaps you as well, have taken some kind of personality, a, a tool or personality assessment over the years. And I work with a set of tools, and the coaches on our team work with a set of tools called Type Coach. Type Coach is a, a competitor of the Myers-Briggs, which more people probably have heard of. And it's based on Carl Jung's theories of personality. If you ever took a person, you know, psychology 101, you probably heard about it. And we, we had a retreat for our firm where we all took Myers-Briggs tests and it resulted in like a, an rupture of arguments amongst us about whether we actually <laughs> believed we fit into one thing. It was fascinating. Right. Anyway. Yeah, it is interrupt. fascinating. <laughs> well, it is fascinating. And it's funny because doing it in a group of lawyers. Look, if you told me when I was practicing law or even 10 years ago that I was going to be using this stuff, I would have told you that you were smoking something because look, I'm just as skeptical as the next lawyer. And this stuff sounded, you know, with all due respect to people who are interested in astrology, it kind of sounded like astrology to me and something that I wasn't going to be interested in. I started really enjoying using it because I think that while no two people are going to be identical, there are things that we can learn about ourselves and about others from these personality tools that can be incredibly valuable in how you communicate and work with other people. And so if you think about it, right, they even call lawyers mouthpieces sometimes. We're supposed to be really good at communication. And yet nobody ever teaches people how to communicate. The idea seems to be, well, you have a mouth and two ears, so of course you can communicate. Well, we know that it's more complicated than that. And so personality research and brain research does demonstrate that people do tend to show up in different ways, right? This is, this is the stuff that's baked into you. So for any of you who have a sibling or you have children, you can probably look around and say something like, wow, you know, my sister and I are so different from each other, right? My parents put in the same recipe and got these completely different people out. And so 
we know that there are things, you know, we used to talk about nature versus nurture, and we know that nature, they both, they're both important, but that nature is very, very strong. And so what research shows, and I think the research was done, if I'm not mistaken, by Dr. Larry Richard, who some of you may heard of. He, he was a practicing lawyer who then went got back and got a PhD in psychology. And the research does demonstrate that lawyers tend to show up in certain personality categories. Think about it. We self-select into law school. Most people didn't go into law school because they were big risk takers. Most people didn't go into law school because they wanted to be salespeople. If we were big risk takers and wanted to be salespeople, we probably would have done something else. And so many, many lawyers do like structure, right? And they do like information and detail, and they think pretty logically. And actually, most lawyers, not all, but a majority of lawyers tend to be introverts, Right, which means that they like to spend more time inside their own heads than out of their heads, that they get, you know, they can, they can get de-energized by being expected to talk to tons of people all at the same time, that sort of thing. And so they, they tend to show up in, in certain categories. And so knowing about yourself and how you show up and understanding how other people show up makes it a lot easier to communicate with each other and work most effectively together. And some of those personality traits become less like, oh, you know, Tim is being a jerk. No, that's just, so that's how Tim shows up in the world, right? He is a bigger picture thinker and you are very detail oriented. So you guys have to be able to talk each other's language. It takes the intentionality out of it and it makes it more easy to communicate with each other, work together and ultimately enjoy working with each other and, and be more effective. I've often thought of something, in, in, these, these are my, my words, the graceful exercise of power. It's easy to draw a line in the sand and tell someone no in, in words. You can, you can just say it, and then you look like a jerk. And there, but there's it's something much more difficult to do it in a way where you are not crashing and burning the relationships around you, even though a lot of times you have to do this because your back is to the wall and you've got to defend your client. You've got to represent your client, and that requires saying no to people who are making demands upon you, especially from opposing attorneys. <laughs> It seems like it's a moment that's fraught, and it, it, to my mind, it's a, it's a talent and a skill that's developed over many years to be able to assert that you need certain things for your client, you're not going to budge on them, but to do it in a way that is, again, graceful or, you know, maintains the relationships going forward. It, is there a word for, for what I'm describing here or a phrase, or do you have, have you talked to that to your clients about things like that, these moments, which can be very difficult for a lot of us? There are two things that come to mind for me. One of them is that I often talk about creating a communication-rich environment. I think that we make a lot of assumptions that people understand where we're coming from. So let's say you're in one of those moments and you have to advocate vociferously for your client and you can't let other things happen and get in the way, even, even if some of them might be reasonable requests. I think that it can be important for people to say, you know what, I'm not gonna just keep all of this in my head. I'm gonna say to them, you know, listen, it may be that some of what you're asking for is reasonable, but because of this situation, we can't go in that direction. And so what happens is when you acknowledge another person's position, and look, you may get yourself in trouble if you do that, right? Again, I'm not a trial lawyer, but if there are times when you can say to somebody, explain what's going on and why you're doing what you're doing in, in a calm, respectful way, I think that you generate respect. They might not like what the answer is, but you're not creating an environment in which you wind up hating each other, right? It's like, I don't like the position, but I understand where the other attorney is coming from, even if I don't like it and even if my client's not going to like it. 
So I think a communication-rich environment, and by the way, that goes for working internally with colleagues or, you know, again, working with opposing counsel or judges or even in your family, wherever it may be, there are times that we just assume that other people know what's going on inside our heads and they don't. And some people will assume the best of you and some people are just wired to not trust. It's like some people will say, well, until so-and-so proves me wrong, I'm going to trust that he's a good person. Whereas other people show up in the world just naturally more wary and more like, well, I, I need to wait to see if this person is trustworthy before I'm willing to trust him and think he's a good guy. And so understanding that people show up in the world differently and being willing to communicate some of what's going inside your head to be able to take some of the, you know, the, the anxiety out of it or the wind out of their sails, I think is worthwhile. And then when it comes to personality type, you know, if you use the model that I'm using, just as an example, because many other models are, are very valuable, there are 16 personality types. Just because you show up or your, your assessment tells you that you're one personality type doesn't mean that that's all of who you are. You know, we're in all of the dimensions. There are, there are four dimensions and there are two ends of the dimension, right? So that's why we wind up with 16 personality types. We're all in all ends of the dimension every day. So even if you're a strong introvert, you have extroverted time, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can understand where other people are coming from and you understand how you naturally show up in the world, it's also incumbent on you to be willing to flex your style. And that's what we talk about with the personality tools. Learning how you show up in the world, understanding how other people's inborn hardwired traits make them who they are, and then not just knowing who you are and who they are, but being willing to flex your style a little bit to accommodate other people is really important. So you can flex towards other people a little bit more. And then you can also ask for what you need. Right. If you're getting constantly frustrated because you're a detail oriented person, as many lawyers are, and you're working with somebody who's a super big picture thinker and they drive you out of your mind because they never give you the information you need, you can sit down with them, especially if they know about their own personality type and you do as well and say, you know, I know that you tend to take a big picture view of things. But what I've learned is I need a little more detail. Would you mind taking five more minutes so I can ask you some questions and then I can run off and do this thing that we need to get done? So I think it's about communicating more about what's going on inside your head in a, com in, in a kind of a compelling but also respectful way, and then your willingness to flex your style towards other people so that you can come closer to the middle. I, I graduated from law, law school a long time ago, 1981, and it's just occurring to me that your description of leadership might make no sense to a lot of people back then. I think I, I suspect that what it means to be a leader has changed a lot over the decades. Is that is that fair? There's no doubt. I mean, the the discrete. You know, if you if you Google leadership, I think you get like 1.3 billion hits or something like that. I was just doing a program and I Googled just to see what happened. Like, what does leadership mean? And you know, back in the day, um, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, leadership seems to be more about top down. Right. Very much a top down environment. The leader said it. Everybody else ran around and did it. There was not necessarily empathetic leadership the way we think of it now. And there's so there's no question that notions of leadership have changed. And so to the extent that there are some of us around who are longer in the tooth, shall we say, I think it's important to understand that, you know, we can learn a lot from from new models of leadership. It doesn't mean capitulating to everybody, right? At the end of the day, the buck probably does stop with you. But getting other people's input, making sure that there's continued innovation and that we, we leave open possibility for voices to be innovative, 
listening to other people, even if you can't give them everything that they want, is important. It's lonely at the top. It's tough at the top because you can't always deliver consensus. You probably can almost never deliver consensus. But people are much more likely to follow a leader when they feel that they've been heard. And so I think that that's important, an important takeaway, right? Even if you're not solving the problem of leadership or entirely changing your notion of leadership, there's a takeaway there that being able to let, allow other people to be heard and valued is an important part of being a leader in today's world. That reminds me again of your pillars and under relationships, your number one pillar, it's, it's apparent that communication, good communication skills are paramount. What, what do you do? What are your first steps for a new client who's really struggling, but you're noticing perhaps something in that person that you suspect might be a characteristic or a tendency, a, a character trait that's maybe they're getting in their own way. Maybe they're a little abrasive or they don't quite have these polished skills for getting along with others as much as you think they need. What, what are your first skills or what's your approach for someone who tells you the world's not fair and you're thinking, mm, uh, you, you know, we, we need to help you in some ways that might not be pleasant to talk about? Right. So as a coach, it's really important to ask as many questions as possible to kind of help the client figure things out on his or her own. And so in that situation, I might say, you know, tell me about the conversations that you're having with so-and-so. How do they usually go? Oh, well, so-and-so says this kind of thing. Well, when so-and-so says that kind of thing, how do you typically react? And then, you know, how do you think that reacting that way is serving you in terms of this relationship or in terms of achieving the goals that you've said that you want to achieve or that sort of thing? And so many times it's really about helping the person work through it and, and have the answers themselves. You know, many times pe they know that it's not working. And why is it not working? Well, what if this person could, would just do this? If they, if they would just do this, it would solve everything. The challenge is that that probably would solve everything. Part of the challenge is we can't change that person, right? We can only figure out how you're going to respond or how you're going to set yourself up for success here and start talking about what, what alternatives might look like in terms of how you're showing up. What can lawyers and leadership positions do to help the lawyers in the firm succeed in their roles? I think part of it is taking a step back and remembering that it's not all just about the practice of law. If you're running a law firm, you know that because now all of a sudden you've got to, you know, you're dealing with billing and you're dealing with collecting and you're dealing with people who maybe some are squeaky wheels and they're not happy with things. Maybe you're dealing with people leaving the firm that you wish you would stay and people staying at the firm that you wish you would leave. I mean, there's so many things that law firm leaders have to deal with. So I think that it starts with the leaders themselves. You know, ask yourself the question without self-flagellating. This is not about, you know, this is not about beating yourself up, but what are some skills that I need? Like, what am I really good at? And what am I maybe not so good at? What are the kinds of things that I'm avoiding dealing with because I'd rather sweep them under the rug and bury my head in, in this matter that if I were willing to be open-minded and I were willing to learn something new or ask somebody to help me might help move the firm in a better direction. So I think for the leaders themselves, it is understanding that you don't do everything well. And again, not your fault, not a reason to beat yourself up about it, but to be willing to look at yourself and say, you know what? I am charged with helping to run this firm. How fortunate am I 
right? This is great. There are so many things that we want this firm to continue to be and we want to, and we aspire to. What might I be doing that can be creating an obstacle? And be open-minded to hearing what those answers are. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It simply means that there are perhaps skills and mindsets that would be helpful to develop. And then be willing to seek some help, right? Maybe somebody in your firm is better at doing something than you are. And you kind of learn a little bit from them and maybe share some of the, the labor on that issue. Maybe you do go find a coach to help you uh, learn about it. Maybe you do take a course at the Bar Association or some kind of other CLE about leadership or running a law firm. And you open yourself up to the idea that the way you're doing it so far may be the best way of doing it, but most likely there's something that you can still learn. And I think when you demonstrate that open-mindedness and willing to learn to other people, you're going to help them succeed and grow as well. What if the leadership of the firm is thinking everything's going pretty well, but they're thinking also because they're doing what you just suggested, I, I'd like to know, is there, how, what's the best way to take the temperature of the firm to see whether things can be better or whether you know people can improve in various ways? Is there an outsider who can come in and talk to the firm or how, how is that normally done? Yeah, there are definitely outside consultants that come, come in. There are practice management consultants. There are coaches and trainers like me. But I think that what you can do is have somebody come in and put together, you know, do some, do some investigations to find out what's going on in the firm. What are some of the issues that are coming up for people? And from law firm to law firm, many of them are the same. So those consultants are going to have a sense of, of, you know, where they should start. I think many times doing doing anonymous surveying of the people in the firm, uh, you could also be doing you know three sixty evaluations so that if you're the if you're the managing partner, people around you can be evaluating you, you could be evaluating them, et cetera, et cetera. You know the culture's got to be in the right place. People's mindsets have to be in the right place because this shouldn't be about finger pointing. It, it really should be about uncovering opportunities and being willing to make changes. So yes, there are absolutely people who can do that for you. I also just do want to say one other thing about this concept because you started to ask me that question and I actually thought you were going to ask me something else, which was something along the lines of what happens when the leadership of the firm thinks everything is fine and the people who are going to start taking over the firm or already have started moving into leadership don't feel that way. Let's say you have a firm that started 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. And so the people that started the firm are starting to get older. They're starting to slow down a little bit. Some of them are starting to retire and move on to other things. And now you've got the next generation of leaders coming along. One of the things that I've seen happen is that the older generation sometimes says something along the lines of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. And the, the people coming along say, well, we see something can be di done differently here, but we really don't want to aggravate the people who are senior to us because after all, they're the ones that created this firm. They're the ones that chose us, helped us grow. We have respect for them. And so what happens is sometimes they just stop in their tracks and the firm does not move ahead. And so even if people have good suggestions or good recommendations or they see something wrong, there's like a, a bottleneck there because the people who started the party don't want to change anything. And the people who got brung to the party, if you know what I mean, don't want to rock the boat. And so that I think becomes a challenge. I think that when you're in leadership, there's got to be an acknowledgement of the people who don't want to move ahead, but a lot of, you know, power and support given to the people who do want to make positive change for the benefit of the firm. 
Elise, where can our audience members find you? And I, I, I would, I'd like you to mention your podcast as, as well as your, your, your company and your, your consulting work. Where, what's the best ways for them to get in touch with you? People who are interested can reach us through our website, which is thelawyersedge.com. That's thelawyersedge.com. You can also get access to the podcast that way. There's a podcast tab and you can, you can subscribe or you can go to your favorite podcast provider like Spotify or Apple podcast or whatever it may be. We're also, the, the podcast is also called The Lawyer's Edge. And I do want to give a quick shout out to our Ignite Women's Business Development Accelerator, which is just finishing the 2023 cohort and we will be restarting again earlier, early in the year. This is for counsel and partners at law firms who are women and who want to be in a community of other women where they receive training, coaching, and that community all around business development. Great. Thank you for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff, and you guys ask great questions, so thanks so much for that. Well, thank you for that. This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. I'm Eric Beath. I'm Tim Cronin. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.